I'm going to do things a little different. Not the uh, not the usual way that I do things. For one, I'm starting off my show by talking, which I don't usually do. That's that's unusual for me. Um, so this is Blackout Tuesday, with everything going on in, in the country. Um, the idea is to was to not do music, to not put content out there so people could focus on what's going on. Um, but I was inspired. I was re- I was reading some stuff online from some folks, some smart folks who um, I admire, and their suggestion was use this space that you would usually use to just entertain people or sell stuff or whatever, whatever you're doing with your online presence, um, and use that space to educate them a little bit, provide them with some knowledge around what's going on. And so that's that's what I'm going to do. So this is... This is a little different, and I hope it goes well. I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but um, here it is. You make my point. (laughs) That as long as a white man does it, it's all right. A black man is supposed to have no feelings. when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent, and love his enemy. No matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, (laughs) then he's an extremist. I think that the uh, speaker who preceded me is getting exactly what he asked for. The, uh, <laughs> my reason for believing in extremism, intelligently directed extremism, extremism in defense of liberty, extremism in quest of justice is because I firmly believe in my heart that the day that the black man takes an uncompromising step and realizes that he's within his rights when his own freedom is being jeopardized to use any means necessary to bring about his freedom or put a halt to that injustice, I don't think he'll be by himself. I live in America where there are only 22 million blacks against probably 160 million whites. One of the reasons that I'm in no way reluctant or hesitant to do whatever is necessary to see that black people do something to protect themselves, I honestly believe that the day that they do, many whites will have more respect for them and that there'll be more whites on their side than are now on their side with these little wishy-washy, love thy, love thy enemy uh, approach that they've been using up to now. And if I'm wrong, then you are racialist. <laughs> As I said earlier, uh, in my conclusion, I'm a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam. I believe in Allah. I believe in Muhammad. I believe in all of the prophets. I believe in fasting, prayer, charity, and that which is incumbent upon a Muslim to fulfill 
in order to be a Muslim. In April, I was fortunate to make the Hajj to Mecca and went back again in September to try and carry out my religious uh, functions and, and, and uh, requirements. But at the same time that I believe in that religion, I have to point out I'm also an American Negro. And I live in a society who, whose, whose uh, social system is based upon the castration of the black man, whose political system is based on castration of the black man, and whose economy is based upon the castration of the black man. A society which in 1964 has more subtle, deceptive, deceitful methods to make the rest of the world think that it's cleaning up its house, while at the same time the thing, same things are happening to us in 1964 that happened in 1954, 1924, and in 1984. They came up with what they call a civil rights bill in 1964, supposedly to solve our problem, and after the bill was signed, uh, three civil rights workers were murdered in cold blood. And the FBI uh, head, Hoover, admits that they know who did it. They've known ever since it happened, and they've done nothing about it. Civil rights bill down the drain. No matter how many bills pass, black people in that country, where I'm from, still our lives are not worth two cents. And the government has shown its inability, or either its unwillingness, to do whatever is necessary to protect life and property where the black American is concerned. So my consent contention is that whenever a people come to the conclusion that the government which they have supported proves itself unwilling and, or proves itself unable to protect our lives and protect our property because we have the wrong color skin. We are not human beings unless we ourselves band together and do whatever, however, whenever is necessary to see that our lives and our property is protected. And I doubt that any person in here would refuse to do the same thing were he in the same position, or I should say were he in the same condition. step farther to see am I justified in this stand and I say I'm not speaking I'm speaking as a black man from America which is a racist society no matter how much you hear it talk about democracy it's as racist as South Africa or as racist as Portugal or as racist as any other racial racialist society on this on this earth the only difference between it and South Africa, South Africa preaches separation and practices separation. America preaches integration and practices segregation. This is the only difference. They don't practice what they preach. Whereas South Africa preaches and practices the same thing. I have more respect for a man who lets me know where he stands, even if he's wrong, than the one who comes up like an angel and is nothing but a devil. The, the, the system of government that America has consists of committees. There are 16 senatorial committees that govern the country and uh, 20 congressional committees. 10 of the 16 uh, senatorial committees are in the hands of southern racialist senators who are racialists. 13 of the 20, about this was before the last election, I think it's even more so now. Uh, Ten of the 16 committees, senatorial committees, are in the hands of senators who are southern racialists. Thirteen of the 20 congressional committees 
were in the hands of uh, Southern congressmen who are racialists. Which means out of the 36 committees that govern the uh, foreign and domestic direction of that government, 23 are in the hands of Southern racialists. Men who in no way believe in the equality of man. And men who do anything within their power to see that the black man never gets to the same seat or to the same level that they are on. The reason that these men from that area have that type of power is because America has a seniority system. And, the, and th these who have that seniority have been there longer than anyone else because the black people in the areas where they live can't vote. And it is only because the black man is the pride of his vote that puts these men in positions of power that gives them such influence in the government beyond their actual intellectual or political ability or even beyond the number of people from the areas that they represent. So we, have, we can see in that country that no matter what the federal government professes uh, to be doing, the power of the federal government lies in these committees and any time a black man or any kind of legislation is proposed to benefit the black man or give the black man his just due, we find that it's locked up in these committees right here. And when they let something through the committee, usually it is so chopped up and fixed up that by the time it becomes law, it's a law that can't be enforced. Well, another example is the Supreme Court desegregation decision that was handed down in 1954. This is a law. And this law, they have not been able to implement this law in New York City or in Boston or in uh, uh, Cleveland or Chicago or the northern cities. And my contention is that any time you have a country, supposedly a democracy, supposedly the land of the free and the home of the brave, and it can't enforce laws even in the northernmost cosmopolitan and progressive part of it that will benefit a black man, if those laws can't be enforced or that law can't be enforced, how much heart do you think we will get when they pass some civil rights legislation which only involves more laws? If they can't enforce this law, they'll never enforce those laws. So my contention is that we are faced with a racialistic society, a society in which they are deceitful, deceptive, and the only way we can bring about a change is to talk the kind of language, speak the language that they understand. The racialist never understands a peaceful language. The racialist never understands the nonviolent language. The racialist, we have, he's spoken his language to us for 400 years. We have been the victim of his brutality. We are the ones who face his dogs that tear the flesh from our limbs only because we want to enforce the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones who have our skulls crushed, not by the Ku Klux Klan, but by policemen, only because we want to enforce what they call the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones upon whom water hoses are turned with pressure so hard that it rips the clothes from our back. Not men, but the clothes from the backs of women and children. You've seen it yourself only because we want to enforce what they call the law. Well, any time you live in a society supposedly based upon law, and it doesn't enforce its own law because the color of a man's skin happens to be wrong, then I say those people are justified to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them justice. in any form of unjustified extremism. But I believe that when a man is exercising extremism, 
a human being is exercising extremism in defense of liberty for human beings. It's no vice. And when one is moderate in the pursuit of justice for human beings, I say he's a sinner. And I might add in my conclusion, in fact, America is one of the best examples when you read its history about extremism. Old Patrick Henry said, liberty or death. That's extreme. <laughs> Very extreme. I, I read once, passingly, about a man named Shakespeare. I only read about him passingly, but I remember one thing he wrote that kind of moved me. Uh, he put it in the mouth of Hamlet, I think it was, who said, to be or not to be. He was in doubt about something. <laughs> Whether it was nobler in the mind of man to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, moderation, or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. And I go for that. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built with it, with it, it is with extreme methods, and I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. You know I got a right to sing the blues. Listen at this. Look out. One, two. Yeah. I got a right to sing the blues. I got a right to feel low down. I got a right to hang around. Down among the river. A certain gal in this old town Keeps dragging my poor around Babe, all I'm seeing From me in misery oh, I got a right to moan inside Got a right to 
basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
So, okay. So maybe you get if you if you tuned in right on time, you kind of get what I'm doing here. I'm I'm giving you a little bit of knowledge. Um maybe a little bit of inspiration, I hope. And uh some music to back it all up with. Um so I just want to make sure just so everybody's clear what I'm doing, what's what's going on here. <clears throat> So that first that first clip I played was from Malcolm X. Um, it, it was a, the end of a debate that he was involved in in 1964 at the Oxford Student Union in Oxford, England. And um, it makes a really... I mean, it's interesting how historically uh, Malcolm X has kind of been... Um, he's either deified or is demonized um, as some kind of horribly divisive figure but to me all I hear when I listen to that to that particular clip is uh, a man who's being completely pragmatic and and actually somewhat legalistic in his understanding of what's going on and what's happening to his people and what's happening in the country that he lives in and unfortunately a lot of what he said is absolutely true. A fuck ton many years later, folks. There's just no other way to put it. It's it's still true. You know, there there's a there's a thing about people who are um and I actually like the term uh that he used quite often in his writings and his speeches. Um Malcolm X tended to try and avoid using the term racist. Um, because it's an epithet, um, you know, it's an, your name calling, you call somebody a racist, you're name calling, you know, you're, you're, you're calling them something. And, and I was reminded when I listened to that, when I was trying to pull all this stuff together for this show, I was reminded that he tended to use the term racialist because what he was trying to do is he was trying to distinguish between the person who has, uh, a prejudice and the person who has an ideology that drives specific policies and specific specific social constraints related to race. You know, you can be racist and have no influence on what happens to your neighbors, but if you're a racialist, you know, that's like being a fascist. Huh, interesting, huh? You're you're somebody who has an ideology that's driven by your desire to keep the races apart. You you're you're fic- this fictionalized idea of race but but I'm not I'm not going to go there right now. Um and the for the background music for that was um a band, not a band, artist called Chicane. Um that was a track called Halcyon that I manipulated a little bit cuz I needed it to be longer. Um and I played some Louis Armstrong. Got a right to sing blues and uh hell yeah. We all do. Some more than others right now. Um and then so that other segment, that other clip, you might have recognized that voice. And um, I think sometimes within American society, it's as if the only thing that Mal- Martin Luther King ever said, Martin Luther King Jr. ever said was, I have a dream, right? There's that speech. That's a, that's a wonderful speech. Um, no denying it. One of the greatest speeches in the history of, of American speechifying or maybe even world speechifying. 
But that clip that I played was from the last speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave before he was assassinated. Um, he gave that in a church in 1968. And he knew, he knew the end was coming. You can hear that at the end of that. But you can also hear that he's beginning to get frustrated with the intransigence of the racialists in America. And that's a that's a version of Martin Luther King Jr. that I think that most Americans are not aware of. They they tend to think he was, you know, he's he's our Gandhi, right? Well, you know, Gandhi went to war when it was necessary. Um somebody said to me, well, what would Jesus do? And I said, Well, you know, go to the part in the Bible where he flips the tables over in the temple, the tables of the money changers, and attacks them with a sword, and then, you know, see if you have a better idea of the answer to that question. Um, yeah. All right, well, that's enough of me talking. I'm going to get back to it. Um, you're listening to The Public Record. I'm Joe Public, and uh, I'm going to learn you. So here you go. <laughs> the sun 
Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering? to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common the rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence, bequeathed by your fathers, is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems or in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave? is your 4th of July. I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and Hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth 
guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced.
Yes, and I believe uh, in my term, or uh, my definition of segregationist, yes, sir. Uh, and that is uh, a segregationist, a person that loves his race enough, or other races enough, has enough of racial pride and integrity to want to preserve them. And I think a racist is one that doesn't care enough for his race or another race to where they would, don't care whether they're amalgamated or destroyed or not. Then could I ask the governor sir. a question? Yeah. Uh, are you familiar, uh, familiar with the black Muslims in this country? 
Not too familiar with them, though. Well, they practice uh, black separatism. Well, that's free and I'm not familiar with them. <laughs> good answer. Very good answer. That's all I say. <laughs> but uh, to continue along that line, do you feel that uh, what they're doing uh, is right? You know, they believe that uh, white people uh, should be separate. They believe that they should have a state in this country. I think they uh, felt that Mississippi or Georgia should be, you know, one of those two states should be the state. Do you well, feel I was, like th this I was is thinking maybe they ought to make it New York. New York, you think so? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get off of that, Governor. You look too tough. <coughs> no, I, I think, I think that forced racial segregation is criminal and unconstitutional, and I think forced racial integration is criminal and unconstitutional. I think either one of them is, is cruel. You mean on a social? Force. You mean on a social level? Any level, if it, where it's forced. <clears throat> well, you, we do have like uh, the laws. You mean when the laws are enforced, that if it involves uh, integration, then it is wrong. If it forces people against their will, against denying them their choice, to then you separate mean or to be, integrate, there should be an it'd be just as wrong if, it, if the law would be just as wrong to, to force them to integrate as it would to be to force them to segregate. Well, don't you if a country can finally get to the point of saying, well, you're going to hire this person, you're going to promote this person, you're going to serve this person, or you, then the country, <clears throat> same country can come right around and tell you, well, you've got to work for that person, you've got to eat with that person, you've got to be served by that person. And this would be cruel and wrong, but so it is when it tells another person that you've got to do this. Well, the laws of the land tells us all what we have to do, basically. That doesn't make it right. Well, I agree with that, but I mean, don't you I mean, believe, don't you believe... The Supreme Court goes outside the Constitution, <clears throat> that doesn't make the Supreme Court right, does it? Don't you believe to have an affluent society, we've all, like, uh, chose to live in a society together, don't you believe that to preserve that society that we need laws, laws of the land, that's why we have a society, and uh, we cannot make exception to these laws just because a person happens to be black or white, don't you we've believe We've got that? most of these laws because <clears throat> we don't abide by the laws of God, though, and so we, we try to... We try to go against the laws of God and against the laws of nature, and we say, well, uh, you're, you're inferior, and you're not going to be able to meet with success in education or in your social life, even in your religious life, life unless you do it with another race. And this teaches inferiority to me. As and it's wrong and it's criminal and it's cruel to teach any one person that he is inferior to another race or his race is inferior. But as governor of uh, the state of Georgia, did you go by the laws of God or by the laws of the state? I go by the laws of God and by the laws of the state. As you see fit. What, what is... Uh... No, it's not about it. I just want to ask the governor... Uh, when, when you say it's, uh, it's morally wrong, um, integration, I believe that's what you said. Or, or it's, I said it's forced segregation or forced integration. <clears throat> racial integration huh? or forced seg or racial segregation. They're both morally wrong cruel and in violation of the United States Constitution, which is the law of the land, not the Supreme Court ruling that yeah. denies the Constitution. You know, I, I assume you know Dr. Billy Graham. <clears throat> sir? I said, I said, you know Dr. Billy yes, Graham? Yes, sir. He was here last night and he, he said that racial prejudice is also morally wrong. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yes, sir. I think uh, racial prejudice is wrong. Yes, we have more, we, we, our government's probably practicing more prejudice today than ever practiced in all the land so mm -hmm. far as between the black and whites. Mm -hmm. There was a quote uh, that you made on the fight uh, in Miami that Muhammad Ali participated in with Jerry Quarry, and uh, well, not in Miami, but in, in Atlanta.
But uh, black people always felt that Atlanta was the model city of the South because of its integration and because of the participation in uh, uh, economics of black people. And uh, your statement uh, on the day of the fight was something like this, that it's a dark day in Georgia because this fight is being put on. Now, uh, the law of the land said that a man can participate uh, in his particular profession unless he is in jail. Uh, I felt very happy that this fight took place in Atlanta. How did, how did you feel about I it? I felt very sad. And why was that? Here's a man that, that, that has <clears throat> said, well, here I want to fight in the ring for money, but I won't even wear the uniform of my country. He says that I, I can't do this, but it, 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 in other words, I'm going to act different from these other people who stand up for their country and put on the uniform. Uh, it, had they not fought for this country, if they were not even fighting today and wearing this uniform, that he could not even get in a ring and fight and be a free man to but fight. But isn't it true So he, he's, he's helping to bring, tear down this country with this philosophy, with this belief. Suppose every American, Mr. Brown, suppose every American had decided that they were not going to put on the uniform of their country and not fight for it. We, we, would, we, wouldn't have a United, we wouldn't have a United States of America, and I couldn't be on your show, and you probably wouldn't even have a show Isn't tonight. True? If everybody had had that attitude, and I don't like it, and I don't care whether you like it, don't care who don't like it. Well, I, uh, I, uh, I did serve, I did serve my time, which, of course, I was a little before Muhammad Ali, and I was not maybe as intelligent as he is, because he was the first individual, I think, in this country that came out and said he had nothing against Viet Cong. I think there were two other politicians in the country that made a very similar statement later. Uh, the late Bobby Kennedy came back from Vietnam and basically said the same thing. At the time, it was not a popular stand to make, but today it is a very popular stand. In fact, we have a lieutenant that's on trial now for certain uh, things that happened in Vietnam. But I am saying that this man followed the law of the land. He made his stand, he has been fighting through the courts, he has gone to the higher courts, and he will go to jail if he is proven guilty. Well, I hope now, he does feel, go, I, I hope, because I think he's guilty of Can I finish, can I finish? Don't you feel that whenever a man goes through the courts, that he is abiding by the laws of the land, and that man who is willing to stand up with that decision is a brave man, regardless of what his beliefs might be? I know a lot of Southerners who, uh, you know, really like black people. And, uh, you know, they portray themselves as uh, being really segregationist and that they hate black people and so forth. But uh, I know some black people feel <clears throat> the same way, but I don't know. I don't know any Southerners that don't like uh, white Southerners don't like blacks. Do you know of any? Can you name uh, one? I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. That's a very I interesting I mean, can point. you name one? No, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. It's an interesting point. You it see. is, yeah. They like uh, uh, black people, but they like them in a role, you see. They like them when they're very humble. And they're very loyal. Well, I like humble people, whether they're white I, or black, I don't know, you? I know, but you see... And loyal people, whether they're black the white, or white, the, don't the white you? People I mean, you just choice. like... You they don't like the choice. Lo loyal You don't like the black people to have the choice, you see. It's only a matter of choice. I want black people and white <clears throat> people to have choice. Well, you, let me you ask got you, it all mixed up. You're let, trying to twist it around. No, no, I'm only huh? trying to agree with you. Would you let me finish? If you'll tell the truth. Well, I'm only making an, uh, an analysis, really. It's not a matter of truth or, uh, or false. Uh, what I'm really saying is that basically history has proven that uh, during the days of slavery, whenever a slave was more or less humble, and he did what he was told, that he was in good favor with, with the master. But whenever a slave was too educated, uh, if he became aware of his own self and he wanted to become more than the master wanted him to become, then he was a bad slave. He was then put down because he represented a threat 
to the already established kind of white look, society. Look, let me say this. Those situations are true <clears throat> with white people and black people. Now, you're just trying to point it at black people only. Because but they've that's, been true that's, throughout uh, the, the subject history of the we're world. Talking about. There's been discrimination. Black against black, black against white, white against black, and white against white. There always has been, there always will be. You're and you're not going to wipe it out, and Tricky Dick's not going to wipe it out, and the Supreme Court's not going to wipe it out. <laughs> you're not addressing it. <laughs> you're not addressing uh, Are you your referring answer to, to my me question? as Tricky Dick? No, you know, you know who I'm talking about. Oh, you are. Oh. Well, you know something, Governor? Believe it or not, I don't think that integration should be the number one thrust of uh, uh, our civil rights leaders anyway, because I think what we're really talking about in this country is economic development of black people, because I've found Economic that, development of all people. Well, we're talking about well, How come you people. have black people? How we're come you don't want to do it for well, black I'll, people? I'll, how come you don't want to do it for white people? I'll tell you why. Huh? I'll tell you why. How come you don't want to do it for everybody? How come can you I, always black get, people? Can I get, talk about all people? Can I give you an answer? Huh? I think can we understand the question. Can I give you an answer? Do you mind? Go ahead. If you're ready, I'll give you time. Okay, Governor. Uh, what I'm really saying is that there are some people that have suffered in this country, poor people generally, but let's say that uh, we have various ethnic groups in this country that have attained a certain kind of equality. Black people are more or less, along with the Indians, uh, on the last wow. rung of the ladder. Can I finish, Governor? Boy. Can I finish? <laughs> okay, do you mind? Now, what I'm really saying is that I feel that the way to bring about equality of black people in this system is what through economic... What about equality of white people? Now, I, I won't interrupt you every time you keep calling black people. Well, what about equality of all people? If you interrupt me, Governor, I can't talk to you. Well, I'm gonna, if you're just going to talk about black people, don't include all people. I try to include all people. You don't, you don't, you're just interested in the black. Why don't you tell these people that in, in Atlanta, Georgia, where you keep talking about the South, that the percentage-wise, more black people are professional business people, industrial Governor, leaders, can I, more can I, men in our I, state house I, elected officials than any other state you? in the country. Can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt Be you? Be all right, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. See, I'm not really here to uh, fight with you. I'm only trying to have a discussion with you. I'm not going to fight I'm with trying, you either. And I'm trying I... to use the technique. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people out there watching you, and I want you to be fair about all people, not just black people. We got a lot of people in this country. I can understand that, but you do know I have a reputation, right? And I saw you. I saw you. I saw you. Tell me what your reputation is. I saw you bring that state trooper back there, you know, behind the curtain. I know you brought him back there for a reason. That's not my purpose tonight. Now, here you go trying that to is not you, my purpose well, you let tonight. me tell you this. Now, would you like to join this conversation? No, I'm going to say this. Now. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to join this conversation? I would like. Why let is me, it let coming me, apart? Let me say this, Mr. Would you let Dick talk a little bit? No, I've got to say this. No, I'm going to let him talk See, right before now. Before I got on this group, before I got on this Because i got a state trooper talk, like all the other governors in the country carry one, and the, and they require it in the state governments that the governors have security personnel. You didn't get them because you were So I carry one of them. I didn't even know you would be here. All it was right. a surprise when I came here tonight and found you would be here. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I've never traveled anywhere in the United States since I've been governor. No other governors travel without one security personnel. Some of them have three and four. I carry one man as an aide, not as security. Mm. Governor Mattis, right. could Are I... Are you afraid because I came up here with an aide? <laughs> I've forgotten what my voice sounds like. Uh, could I, I would like to say, 
Governor, I, I don't want you to create the impression that you were trapped in any sense tonight. I mean, there was, it's been known for some days that Mr. Brown is going to be here. You, we didn't actually trap you, did we, into coming in? Well, I, I want you to know that I didn't know he was going to be here, but it wouldn't make no difference because you, you, you invited me and I yeah. accepted the invitation. Yes. But he said something about I know his reputation. I don't know Jim Brown. Who is Jim Brown? Well, let, let me introduce you. on your ass, man, you know? They really degrade you. White folks don't believe that shit, don't believe cops degrade. Oh, come on, those beatings, those people are resisting arrest. I'm tired of this harassment of police officers. Because the police live in your neighborhood, see? And you be knowing them as Officer Timpson. Hello, Officer Timpson, going bowling tonight? Yes, uh, nice pinto you have. <laughs> Niggas don't know them like that. See, white folks get a ticket, they pull over, hey, officer, yes, glad to be of help. Hey, oh. Nigga got to be talking about, I am reaching into my pocket for my license. Because I don't want to be no motherfucking accident. <laughs> Police degrade, I don't know, you know, it's awful. You wonder why a nigga don't go completely mad. You know, you do. You get your shit together. You work all week, right? And then you get dressed. You make, you may say, can't make $125. We get $80 if he's lucky. <laughs> right? And he go out, get clean, be driving with his old lady, going out to a club, and police pull over. Get out of the car! That was a robbery! A nigga looks just like you! All right, put your hands up, take your pants down, spread your cheeks. Now, what nigga feel like having fun after that? <laughs> oh, let's just go home, baby. You go home and beat your kids and shit. <laughs> You're gonna take that shit out on somebody. I've been on my own 
talking more my vocal cords are dry perhaps should do something about that well how sensitive is this dang mic okay little levity you can actually hear me scratching on the collar of my t-shirt on this mic that's crazy all right i'm joe public you're listening to the public record that was albert king born under a bad sign and so here's the shtick the shtick i'm doing today is to Play some clips, play some audio clips and some stuff that like expand your mind about the context of what's going on right now. Um, Cause it's blackout Tuesday. I didn't feel comfortable just saying, okay, I'm just going to play some, I'm going to play some tunes. I'm going to have a party in my studio and uh, entertain some people. It's like, no, no. And I didn't feel comfortable saying, no, I'm not doing a show. Right. I, 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 I had some, I was influenced by some folks um, who I admire who said, hey, let's take this space and let's use it to to actually do some teaching, to share some knowledge. Um, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, so let me tell you what you heard. You heard uh, Richard Pryor doing... Uh, you know, I'm just going to say it because, okay, I'm going to go with Louis C.K. Louis C.K. said that when you say the N-word, you're not actually doing anybody a favor. You're just making me say the word in my head. So I'm just going to say the title of that uh, bit was Niggers versus the Police. And I got to point out, man, that was recorded when I was in grade school. Okay? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The, the level of the bad that happens to the poor asshole who gets pulled over for no goddamn reason or gets slammed against the ground 
you know, the level of what happens, that's changed. But the harassment, that's been going on decades, just decades. Um, that's why I, I think it's a big part of why the level of fed up that's been reached now is, is here. Um, Will Smith's uh, quote said, um, racism hasn't changed, it hasn't gotten worse, it's just being filmed. So that's a that's an element to it. I mean, that's the the social media, the immediacy of video and everything that has that has changed things. I mean, think about it. When Rodney King was beat up by the LAPD, um, it was horrifying to America. Like people were shocked because it was on video. They'd never seen anything like that before. Imagine if back then. Every single person was walking around with a high-end video camera, which is basically the world that we're in right now. Everybody. Um, and yet the message doesn't seem to get out. I mean, there's two things. One, the message hasn't gotten out to the the bad folk. Um, hasn't gotten out to them. You're going to be videotaped. Like, your life is going to be ruined. Um there's going to be consequences. You're not just going to get away with it anymore, right? You can't just lie and say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. No, it's clear. Like in this George Floyd situation, you just watch that video. It's like that motherfucker absolutely knew what he was doing and did not care. Um, so that's the difference. That's like the, that's the thing that's, that's changed the conversation a bit. And now it remains to be seen whether or not the world changes because of it. Um, before that, I played a clip from the Dick Cavett show. Um, Lester Maddox, um, was a, uh, political figure in the 1960s in the South. The guy was an absolute, like, radical segregationist. If you want to look him up, you want to Google him or duck to go him, uh, Lester Maddox basically was just like a guy who owned a restaurant who decided to run for office because he didn't want to be told that he had to serve black people in his restaurant. Um, And he believed that he had a constitutional right to only serve people that he wanted to serve in his restaurant. And and that catapulted him into this political situation where he became governor. And so he gets invited to the Dick Cavett show, and Dick Cavett, wily little weasel that he was, uh, decides to have him on at the same time as Jim Brown, the, the football player, one of the most articulate, like Jim, if every athlete was as intelligent and articulate as Jim Brown, everybody would want to be an athlete. I mean, if you listen to that clip and you listen how, how gently he handles a guy who he clearly despised, like you, you, you you can't hear it in the audio, but if you see, you can go look at the video. There's video of this on YouTube. You can go look at the video, and, and he is just, he knows he's sitting next to a guy who's not dealing with a full deck, who is very much a racialist, who, you know, is, is not being honest and genuine about what he really wants and what he really believes. Um, and so, like, as one, as somebody mentioned on the chat here on Radio Nope, um, the all lives matter thing, all people matter business. That's actually, that's a, that's a line. That's a talking point that goes back to the 1960s from the Dixiecrats and the segregationists, you know, the George Wallace folks, 
that goes back to them because anytime somebody said, well, what about, you know, the poor black people, they would immediately start talking about poor white people. Not that they were going to do a fucking thing to help poor white people. They just were going to make that point much the same as the all lives matter asshats make today, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a diversion. It's a, it's a, it's an attempt to derail the converse conversation and make it go away. Let's make this thing. I don't like go away kind of thing. So that's why I played that. Cause I thought that was really meaningful. Um, Billie Holiday did strange fruit before that. And, um, I started off with, um, the, the first kind of like spoken thing was James Earl Jones reading, um, a speech given by Frederick Douglass about why he was not interested in celebrating the 4th of July. Um, which I think <laughs> is super powerful, especially coming from the man with that kind of voice. Um, and then I started off with Count Basie and his orchestra with blue, blue skies. Cause I can't just be a downer all night. I can't do that. Um, I got to put some joy in here somehow. Anyway, um, I'm Joe Public. You're listening to the Public Record, and so uh, here's what happens when you um, when you get me on a uh, I want to edumacate you tear. I pull out books. So there's this like guidebook. If if you're parent of a of a of a young person. Um, and I, and I, I, I think I would be inclined to say this is not just a book for boys. This is a book for everybody, a young person. There's a book called The Art of Manliness that actually is a like a philosophical guidebook to how not to be a uh, lumpen piece of garbage. You know, the modern world doesn't ask much of us, right? We don't have to. We don't have to care how we're dressed. You don't have to look presentable. Uh, you don't even have to smell good anymore. I mean, I, I I was, here's the interesting thing. Okay. Since this whole COVID-19 thing started, I actually noticed that the people out in the supermarket are dressed. Maybe that's because they're afraid of if they wear their pajamas to the supermarket, that they will catch something. But I'm grateful for this because I don't want to see your, your filthy PJs out in public. Stop. Don't. Anyway, that's kind of the superficial thing about this book, but there's other stuff in there too, about how you treat other people. And there's a whole section in the book devoted to the, what they call the virtuous man. And I think it's more of the, like, the ethical, socially responsible man. And one of the headlines in here talks about justice. So that's one of the virtues that you need to cultivate in yourself. And a lot of people aren't sure how they do that. And then there's epithets get hurled around. People get called social justice warriors. Um, I've, I've been called a social justice warrior online probably once a month, maybe once a, as often as once a week um, for probably about 10 years. And uh, I, I wear it as a badge of honor. Oh, yes, I am a warrior who is interested in justice for everyone. I have no idea how you thought that was going to insult me. Um, but anyway, so here's what authors of The Art of Manliness um, Brett and Kate McKay have to say about justice wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty justice dictates that those who uphold laws, rules, and standards are rewarded those who do not are punished unfortunately the scales of justice are too often out of balance 
with the honest, hard-working man getting the shaft and the cheating weasel making off like a bandit. This makes stories like that of Leonard Abess Jr., uh, Jr. all the more refreshing. After selling his majority stake in the bank over which he presided, Abbas took $60 million of that money and distributed it to the bank's 399 employees, even tracking down 72 who had previously worked for him but no longer did. Why'd he do it? Abbas said he didn't need the money himself and had long understood that it was the little guys down on the ladder that made the bank a success. I saw that if the president doesn't come to work, it's not a big deal, he said. But if the tellers don't show up, it's a serious problem. Abbas wanted to give his employees a just reward. How to develop the virtue of justice? Develop knowledge. To be a just man, you must develop knowledge of the rights and responsibilities that govern your family, community, and nation. You must have a firm grasp on history, culture, ideas, and current events. You can develop the knowledge necessary to exercise justice with wisdom by doing the following. Number one, read good books. Make it a goal to read as many of the classic works of literature that you can during your lifetime. All great books struggle with complex issues that require characters to grapple with the concept of justice. By reading great literature, you develop the knowledge needed to sift through and weigh lives sticky issues. Read and watch reputable news sources. Whether online or in print, every man should read at least one newspaper a day. Read sources with both a liberal and a conservative slant in order to get a balanced viewpoint. By keeping abreast of current events, you'll begin to see the amount of injustice in the world, develop the ability to make judgments on how to solve these injustices, and be inspired to take action. Number three, travel and leave your comfort zone. When the opportunity arises, visit a foreign country and seek out places and people not found in the travel guides. Immersing yourself in different cultures will enrich your views and ideas. Areas where you can exercise justice. Here's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Do not act as if thou wert going to live 10,000 years. Death hangs over thee. While thou livest, while it is in thy power, be good. Justice in your community. The greatest force for good is undertaken on a one-to-one -one basis. Many people in your community didn't receive a fair start in life. You can serve the cause of justice by helping them rise to the level playing field. Find a way to volunteer and perform services for others. Become a big brother or boy scout leader and mentor a young lad on his journey to becoming a man. Justice in your country. Many men today have grown quite cynical about politics, but apathy only makes civic life worse. Nothing will ever change unless good men start caring. So read up on the issues, get actively involved in campaigns, help get the good guys in power and the corrupt bastards kicked out. Justice in the world. If you wish to fight global injustices, you must do more than attend awareness-raising concerts decked out in, quote, awareness-raising t-shirts. Instead, join the Peace Corps or Corps, sorry, or work for UNICEF. If all you can do is donate money, make sure you donate it to reputable non-governmental agencies or to fund microloans to enable people in developing countries to start small businesses. That's kind of like a small scale version of how can you be a more just person understand this book is written with the intent that you would hand this to somebody who's an adolescent so they can get a start on this that's the idea a start right because if all you do is sit at home and bemoan your a lot in life and 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 exercise your thumbs 
um, on your device of choice, um, nothing's going to happen. No amount of tweeting you do will change the world. No amount of Facebook posts will change the world. No amount of complaining will change the world. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk says, complaining is a zero-profit enterprise. Complaints go nowhere. You need to actually get involved and do things. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. I, I'm, I'm not going to, like, I'm not you know, like waving my banner, but I'm going to tell you, I volunteer in my community. I have done so for years. Um, you don't have to, like, jump into some giant thing. You can find something you genuinely care about, put your time uh, and your energy behind it, and you can make it be different. You can make it be better. You can you can make the world more inclusive and more um, welcoming to people who aren't you. Oh, and by the way, if you are a white male, you have to do this because you were born into a world that's absolutely, f- everything's lined up to favor you. Everything is lined up to favor you. Um, to, to, to quote Louis C.K. again, and I apologize for quoting the guy who's been canceled by the culture, To quote him again, if you had a time machine and you're a white man, you can go anywhere, right? If you are a minority, if you're a black person, if you're a black guy, you don't really want to go anywhere in the past. Um, And as Louis said, if you're a white man, you probably don't want to travel to the future because that shit is going to come down on our heads bad. We're seeing that now. So, okay, that's my, that's my pontificating for the moment. I'm going to get back to this thing that I'm doing here. I'm Joe Public. Thank you for tuning in. It's, uh, it's the public record. It's the uh, Blackout Tuesday version. And here's some more music.
the most profound effect. He was a graduate student when he interviewed the former slaves, including the two women you hear in this broadcast. Himself interviewed just before he died in 1979, Falk was going on about how he believed in giving blacks the right to go to school, giving them the right to vote, giving them the right to go into anything they qualified for. And then he said he experienced an epiphany. Yeah, sitting out on a wagon tongue with this old black man and was telling him what a different kind of white man I was. I remember him looking at me very sadly and kind of sweetly and condescending and said, you know, you still got the disease, honey. I know you think you're cured, but you're not cured. You can't give me the right to be a human being. I'm born with that right. Now you can keep me from having that. If you've got all the policemen and all the jobs on your side, you can deprive me of it. But you can't give it to me. Because I was born with it just like you was. And my God, it had a profound effect on me. I was furious with him. But the more I reflected on it, the more profoundly it affected me. And I realized this was where it really was. Tell you the truth, when I think of it today, I don't know how I'm living. I remember that just as well. Looked like to me, I can't. Been slaves all our lives. Mother was slave, sister was slave, father was slave. They know enough about reading right now. All that I know, they teach you to mind your mouth when you miss it. Mama didn't know where to go. You see, after she was gone, just turned, just like he turned some out, you know, didn't know where to go. They are haunting voices from the past. Not actors reading a script or scholars reading a text but the actual voices of men and women, Americans, who were born in slavery. My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. Her people didn't have no beds when they were slaves. You don't slip on the floor. Tied up here and tied up there. Just like a, a lot of uh, wild people. We didn't. We didn't know nothing. Didn't like to look at no book. Harriet Smith, remembering what she saw as a small girl during the final days of the Civil War. We said, "Oh, I put on that picket fence. 
all day long seeing them soldiers going back to silent homes and different places. Colored soldiers, colored soldiers in droves. Went right along by our house, our home. These recorded memories were among thousands of interviews done with ex-slaves in the 1930s and 40s. Do you remember slavery days? Of course, I remember all our white folks and all the names of them, all the children. Call everyone the children's names. Who did you belong? The baby boy. The results of these digitally enhanced recordings are arresting, almost unbelievable. The idea of hearing the voices of actual slaves from the plantations of the Old South is as powerful, as startling really, as if you could hear Abraham Lincoln or Robert E. Lee speak. Listen again to Fountain Hughes, who was born in 1848. We were slaves. We belonged to people. They sell us like they sell horses and cows and hogs and all like that, have them auction bench and put you on a, up on the bench and beat on you the same as you're bidding on cattle, you know. Much of what these three former slaves say may at first seem unremarkable. Much of what they say may surprise and upset. And their calm demeanor is at odds with the evil and violence we associate with slavery. Here is 91-year-old Texan Laura Smalley talking in the 1940s about the outcome of a tussle between two women, one black, one white, one slave, one mistress. The mistress tried to slap the slave, but the black woman pushed her into a chair. Laura Smalley was a girl at the time, but she remembers vividly what happened to the black woman when the master came home. Well, they take that old woman Poor old woman cat in the peach orchard and whipped her. And you know, just tied her hand this way, you know, around the peach orchard tree. I remember that just as well, looked like to me, I can't. And round the tree and whipped her. And well, she couldn't do nothing but just kick her feet, you know, just kick her feet. But it, it just had her clothes all down to her waist, you know. It didn't have her plum naked, but they had her clothes down to her waist. And every now and then they'd hook her, you know, and then snuff the pipe out on you know, snuff the pipe out on you. You know the embers in the pipe, I'm where you'll see the pipe smoking. Blow them out on? Mm-hmm. Good Lord. The plantation on which Smalley was a slave sounds brutal. She recalls scrambling with other children for food from a huge wooden tray, like a hog trough. All of them, you know, would get around that tree with spoon and eat, sit you like mush or soup or something like that. And all them children get around there and just eat, 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 eat. Fountain Hughes tells his interviewer about the relentless round of work for him on a Virginia plantation. Night never come, though. You had nothing to do. Time to cut tobacco. If they want you to cut all night long, let me see you, you cut. And if they want you to hang all night long, you hang, hang tobacco. It didn't matter about your tired being tired, you're afraid to say you're tired. It was cotton, not tobacco, that solidified slavery, though. The invention of the cotton gin at the end of the 18th century made its processing easy, but the crop still needed enormous amounts of unskilled labor. Control of the slave and his labor through laws and regulations became paramount. 
Fountain Hughes talks about one of those controls, the pass system. Now I couldn't go from here across the street, or I couldn't go from nobody's house that I have a note or something from my master. And if I had that pass, I would really call a pass. If I had that pass, I could go wherever he sent me, and I'd have to be back, you know, when I, whoever he sent me to, they, they'd give me another pass, and I'd bring that back, so it's a show how long. Even emancipation didn't truly free the slaves. Freedom freed slaves for more travail. The end of the Civil War found many cast adrift without skills and no place to go. And the Yankees who freed them weren't always seen as benevolent liberators. I remember when the Yankees came along and took all the good horses and took all the, sort of all the meat and flour and sugar and stuff out in the river and let it go down the river. And they know the people who wouldn't have nothing to live on, but they done that. The ex-slaves left one hell for another, perhaps an even more dangerous one. No longer property, they didn't have the protections afforded property. When we were slaves, we couldn't do that, see? Mm -hmm. And if we got free, we didn't know nothing to do. And my mother, she then she hunted places and bound us out for a dollar a month. But we didn't have no property, we didn't have no home. We had nowhere, nothing. We didn't have nothing on it, just to, like the cattle, we just turned out and uh, get along the best you could. In Texas, the slaves weren't told they were free until two months after the war ended. Smalley remembers that her masters gave the slaves a dinner and then they were free. I don't hide the other side of the functional freedom. We didn't know. They just thought, you know, we're just feeding us, you know. Some of them didn't know where to go. You see, after freedom broke, just turned, just like he turned something out, you know. They didn't know where to go. That's just where they stayed. Mm -hmm. Didn't know where to go. Turned us out just like, you know, you turn out cattle. <laughs> In the narratives, the slaves used an interesting phrase for the end of slavery. They say, when the break came. Good times, easy times were not at hand. The trials for millions of black Americans didn't end in 1865. They continued. Laura Smalley and her family became sharecroppers. Harriet Smith's first husband was killed by whites during the Reconstruction, probably because of his political organizing. Fountain Hughes went north to Baltimore and worked at numerous jobs, including hauling manure. Not an enviable job, but it was the job of a free man.
got a man that's always late Anytime we have a date But I love him Yes, I love him And I'm gonna walk up to his gate And see if we can't get this thing straight Cause I want him Is you is or is you ain't I'm my baby The way you're acting lately uh, Makes me die You is still my baby, baby But it seems my flame in your hearts Are done gone out A man is a creature that has always been strange. Just when you're sure of one, you'll find he's gone and made a change. Well, is you is or is you ain't my baby? Well, maybe babies found somebody new. Is he still my baby, true? a creature that has always been strange just when you're sure of one you will find he's gone and made a change so is you is or is you ain't my baby maybe my baby's found somebody new Dunn Washington with Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. I love that song. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing else to say about it. Just, I just love that song. That's a great song. It's Joe Public on the public record doing my, like, throwing down the science thing. That's not really science. Throwing down the knowledge. Throwing down the knowledge. Hardcore knowledge tonight. Um, before that, we had... For our backing track, Armin Van Buren with This Is What It Feels Like. And that was the backing track to a segment from Nightline from 1999 um, that I got to give props to old Ted Koppel for doing, where he he 
played those recordings. He like highlighted recordings. Those are in the National Archives, by the way. At least they were the last time uh, anybody checked. And um, it is pretty incredible. I mean, to hear the voices of people who were slaves, who people, I people were owned by other people in this country when it was founded. That's written into the Constitution, right? People were owned by other people. And to justify it, people tied themselves in knots coming up with reasons why the people they owned weren't actually people. They were just a different kind of cattle, right? And that's fundamentally where all this crap comes from, right? Because if if it's important to somebody to believe that um, a different pigmentation of someone's skin from what they have makes them not human, um, you're going to have a really hard time convincing those folks, right? Oh, whoa, cool, sh cool shit in the chat. Okay, so somebody posts uh, Steve King... New York uh, member of the House of Representatives lost his primary race. The guy's a giant racialist asshat. Um, so he's not going to get to run to hold on to his seat. That's what that means. It doesn't mean the seat goes to somebody who's not a different kind of asshat, but it means that particular asshat is done. And apparently... Uh, Ferguson, Missouri now has its first black mayor. So right on. Voting matters, folks. Um, you know, if, you, if you're if you out there listening and you're thinking it doesn't matter whether you vote or not, no, it fucking matters. You need to vote. Um, and, and, and you need to make sure your neighbors vote. Um, if you've got elderly neighbors, right, um, get them to the polls. Right, there was this whole thing like uh, Sarah Silverman did like the uh, years ago called the Great Schlep. Right, I thought that was awesome. You know, you're a Jewish kid, you got a Jewish grandma, get Jewish grandma to vote. It's important. Anyway, that's awesome. That's some good news in the midst of all of this other stuff. Um, I've got a big long segment I want to get to though, so I'm gonna, I'm going to stop talking. I'm not going to talk before this is over. Um, because I think this is super important. Uh, I'm going to give you a preview, okay? So I found this interview, a uh, fairly lengthy interview with Rosa Parks, and um, it's it's touching. I mean, this is it, it was recorded in 1995, so about 10 years before she passed away, and um, it's, it's remarkable. To me, the remarkable thing about these folks that were like literally on the front lines of the battlefront, quite literally, um, is the compassion that you hear from them. That's that's a big, big frickin' deal, man, because that's what we need. We need compassion for each other because we're all in it together. Uh, we may not be in the same boat, but we're all floating around in the same sea. <laughs> That is for sure. So I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to give you your backing track because I think that's kind of a cool thing to do. And uh, then we'll get to Rosa Parks and then I will see you next week. And let's hope everybody stays safe, comfortable, take care of yourselves. Um, 
Don't get shot. Seriously. Oh, and if you're a law enforcement officer, make sure that your coworkers behave themselves. Okay? on December 1st, 1955 for refusing to stand up on the orders of the bus driver after the uh, white seats had been occupied in the front. And of course, I was not in the front of the bus as many people and many people had ridden and spoken that I was, that I got on the bus and took the front seat, but I did not. I took a seat that was just back of where the white people were sitting. And in fact, the last seat, and the man was next to the window, and I took an aisle seat, and there were two women across. And we went on undisturbed until uh, about the second or third stop when some white people boarded the bus and left one man standing. And when the driver noticed him standing, he told us to stand up and let him have those seats. He referred to them as front seats. And when uh, the other uh, three people, after some hesitancy, uh, stood up, he wanted to know if I was going to stand. I told him I was not, and he told me he would have me arrested. And I told him he may do that. And of course he did. He uh, didn't move the bus any further than where we were and went out of the bus, I sit in the door, and several people got off. Didn't any white people get off, but several other black people got off. And shortly thereafter, the two policemen came on the bus, and one asked me if uh, the driver had told me to stand, and I said yes. And he wanted to know why I didn't stand. I told him I didn't think I should have to stand up. And then I asked him, why did they push us around? And he um, said, and I quote him, I don't know, but the law is a law and you are under arrest. And with that, I got off the bus under arrest. It was put in the paper that I had been arrested. And of course, there were people, Mr. E.D. Nixon, who was the legal redress uh, chairman of the NAACP, of the, the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. And he'd been made a number of calls during the night and called a number of ministers. And they set a meeting for this. I was arrested on Thursday evening, and on Friday evening is when they had the meeting at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. Martin Luther King was a pastor. And a number of citizens came and I told them the story. And then from then on, it became no, uh, news about my being arrested. And on 
My trial, which was December 5th, is when they found me guilty and I was, uh, uh, the lawyers, uh, Fred Gray and Charles Langford, who were representing me, they filed an appeal. I didn't pay any uh, fine. They set uh, a, a, a meeting at the Holy Street Baptist Church on the evening of uh, December 5th because that was a, December 5th was the day the people stayed off in large numbers and did not ride the bus. In fact, most of the buses I think all of them were just about empty, with the exception of maybe a very, very few people. And when they found out that one day's protest had kept the people off the bus, they made a, um, well, it came to a vote actually, and it was unanimously decided that they would not ride the buses anymore until changes for the better were made. I don't remember feeling that angry, but I did uh, feel determined to uh, take this as an opportunity to let it be known that I did not want to be treated in that manner and that we as people had endured it far too long. However, I did not have at the moment of my arrest any idea of how the people would react. And since they react favorably, willing to uh, go on with with their desires. And of course we formed what was known as the Montgomery Improvement Association on the afternoon of December 5th. And that is when Dr. Martin Luther King became very prominent in the, our, our movement because he was chosen as a spokesman and the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. As I look back on the, those days, it's just like a dream. And the only thing that bothered me was that we waited so long to make this protest and to let it be known wherever we go, that all of us should be free and equal and have all opportunities that others should have. When the, I was arrested, I was 42 years old, and the, um, there were so many uh, needs for us to continue to work for freedom because I didn't think that we should have to be treated in the way we were just for the sake of white supremacy because it was designed to make them feel and make them feel superior and us feel inferior and that was the, the whole uh, plan of uh, racially enforced segregation. Back in Montgomery, 
during my growing up there, it was uh, completely legally enforced racial segregation. And of course, I struggled against it a long time. I felt that it was not right to be deprived of freedom when we were living in the uh, home of the brave and the land of the free. Of course, when I refused to stand up on the orders of the bus driver uh, for a white passenger to take the seat, When I, I was not sitting in the front of the bus, as so many people have said, and neither was uh, my feet hurting, as many people have said, but I had made up my mind that I would not give in any longer to legally enforced racial segregation. And of course, that uh, my arrest brought about the uh, protests, for more than uh, a year. And in doing so, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King became prominent because he was uh, the leader of our protests, along with many other people. And I'm very glad that this uh, experience that I had then brought about a movement that uh, triggered across the uh, United States and in other places. My mother was one, well, my family, I would say, my mother, my, my maternal grandparents, I grew up with them. And of course, my mother was a teacher in the little school, and she believed in freedom and equality for of people and did not have that notion that we were uh, supposed to live as we did under legally enforced racial segregation. She didn't believe in it. Just by her attitude and her uh, way she talked and that uh, we were human beings and we should be treated as such. Just the way I grew up, yes, yes, she did. And of course, my grandfather was had the same idea as well as my grandmother. Both of them were born before the emancipation, before slavery ended, and they suffered a lot as as young children during slavery. And of course, after. Slavery was not that much better, but I guess it was some better. They were farmers, lived in the rural area in Alabama. My mother was a teacher, and I did attend school when she was teaching. And of course, my very first teacher was a Miss Sally Hill, and I liked her very much. In fact, I liked school when I was very young, in spite of the fact that it was a, a little one uh, room school for all, uh, for all students, all ages from the very young until up to teen, as long as they went to school. And it was only um, 
short term five months of the year instead of their regular nine months of the year for us. I want to let you know that all, all of us uh, should be free and equal and have equal opportunity. And that is what I'm trying to instill and encourage and inspire young people to reach their highest potential. We uh, work with young people uh, from the ages of uh, 11 to 17. And our main program is the Pathways to Freedom. And we will be going from Memphis, Tennessee, through 10 other states and Washington, D.C., and, and in Canada. And it begins July 14th and end August 8th. And we hope to take as many young people and their chaperones throughout these areas and stop and have uh, workshops and programs. And they'll be traveling by bus, buses rather. And we hope that that will inspire and give them a sense of history and also to encourage them to uh, be concerned about their health, the history, and to be motivated to uh, reach their highest potential. And we all always encourage them to have a spiritual awareness because I feel that with the spirit within and our belief in ourselves and our faith in God that we will overcome many obstacles that we could not with negative attitudes. I want to always think in terms of being positive and them being positive and believing in themselves and believing that they should be good citizens and an asset to our, our country and our, well, and to the world. And I believe in peace too and not uh, violence. I think it, the, to believe in yourself and to feel that when you feel like you have the right idea is to stay with it. And of course, it all depends upon the cooperation of the people around. And uh, since people are very cooperative and stayed off the buses, and, from that, of course, we went on to other things. And I, uh, along with Mrs. Steele, who's here with me, organized the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for the Self-Development. Of course, Raymond being my husband, who's now deceased, and he was another person who inspired me because he believed in freedom and equality himself.
I think uh, the American dream should uh, to have a good life and to live well and to be a good citizen. I think it should apply to all of us and that it is the land of the free and the home of the brave and I believe it should be just that with all people who can uh, think of themselves as uh, human beings and that they will enjoy the blessings of the freedom of this country. We still have a long way to go. We still have many obstacles and many challenges to face. And uh, I, it's far from perfect and it may never be, but I think as long as we do the best we can to improve conditions, then more people will be benefited. I try to not think of uh, those things that we cannot uh, uh, control, but I think if we continue to work with positive attitudes, that conditions will be better for more people.